Good evening, everybody. I'm uh, running solo tonight. Uh, I've got a lot of information to cover, and I've gotten a few concerning articles, and folks have sent me some, and I uh, was back last week in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, working with Charlie, and there was a fascinating interview he did with Alan Dershowitz uh, that really inspired a number of the things I want to take a look at. And we actually have some clips from that interview that Charlie did with Alan Dershowitz, and all of this is a vilification of Christianity, and that's my greatest concern. Uh, one article in particular that was in Politico magazine uh, speaking um, uh, about uh, a member or a high-ranking official of Homeland Security. Her name is Elizabeth Newman. They did an interview with her, and her response in regards to um, the Capitol riots uh, is troubling And her conclusions. Now, I found it a well-written article in the sense that it flowed nicely. I thought her thought process was interesting. I thought the way that she analyzed uh, some of the things were pretty insightful. However, her conclusions were troubling, uh, and some of the ways in which she labeled Christians as in general and lumped us in with uh, what was the worst of what occurred at the Capitol riots. And before I get into that, and I'm going to show you some slides, and I'm going to be doing a lot of reading, so you're going to have to put your thinking caps on and listen. You may be sitting in a chair. I'm standing. At, you know, there's a lot of work to do tonight. So we've got our homework to do. We've got to be prepared for what's coming down the pike. And um, and so with that being said, uh, today, or actually should say that this year, uh, well, it, it would be 300 years, uh, October 8th of last year. So it's been a little bit over 300 years was the uh, birth of the, or the anniversary, the 300th anniversary of the birth of a man by the name of Jonathan Mayhew. Jonathan Mayhew. You may not know who that is, uh, but all the founding fathers did. Uh, all the folks that conceived and had uh, a hand in the development of this nation knew who Jonathan Mayhew was. Um, he did a fascinating article. Actually, it was a sermon dealing with Romans 13 in 1750. That was one of the most popular sermons that circulated throughout all the 13 colonies that kind of instigated uh, the rebellion against England and, of course, led to the conception of the United States of America. You won't find it in your 1619 project history. Uh, that's all revisionist. You won't find it in any of those things. But it's fascinating. We're going to take a deeper look at, into that probably tomorrow night. So if you have time, I want you to do your homework and examine Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. Uh, 1750 is when he did this article, and it's on this concept of tyranny, Romans 13, how to observe it and what to do. Because tomorrow night, as we take a look at all this, we need to kind of equip ourselves to see exactly um, what it is we're up against and what we're dealing with. Because uh, we've been labeled a number of things in evangelical Christendom, but this article that I alluded to and read a little bit on Sunday morning, I want to cover in, the, in its entirety tonight. And so with that, I'm going to... I'm just going to start reading um, uh, from what I have, and you follow along with me. Um, and so I'm going to pull up the slides now. We're going to take a look at it, and I'm just going to read to you. So uh, for two decades, the U.S. government has been engaging with faith leaders in Muslim communities at home and around the world in an attempt to stamp out extremism and prevent believers vulnerable to radicalization from going down a path that leads to violence. And this is the political uh, Politico uh, article, and the subject matter is Elizabeth Newman, and you're going to find out about her here. It goes on to read, Now, after the dangerous QAnon conspiracy theory helped to motivate the insurrection, and I underlined that, highlighted it, and put it in red, because that word insurrection is what they say happened at the Capitol. Now, after the dangerous QAnon conspiracy theory helped to motivate the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, with many participants touting their Christian faith, and as evangelical pastors throughout the country ache over the spread of the conspiracy theory among their flocks, and, it is, and it's very real human toil, very real human toil. I think it's uh, five people were killed, four of them Trump supporters. One was an officer who at first they claimed had been bludgeoned, uh, with a fire extinguisher, but the autopsy said there was no blunt force trauma to his head, and they still haven't revealed how he died, tragic as it is. Um, and then 17 officers were injured, so that's real human, to uh, real human toll. But we're going to compare that with a couple of other things, and then this labeling of insurrection uh, by the authors of this article and um, Elizabeth Newman herself. 
They go on to say, it's worth asking whether the time has come for a new wave of outreach to the religious communities, this time aimed at evangelical Christians. Now, by the way, um, evangelical is from the word ulangelion, which means good news. Uh, it's it's the, the part of Christendom that believes in the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he's come to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and that he wants to write your name in the Lamb's book of heaven. And it's just the whole basic premise of Christianity. But that label has been given to us and now it's being uh, uh, villainized. So uh, Miss Newman goes on to say, uh, Newman, who was raised in the evangelical tradition, is a devout Christian. Her knowledge of that world and her expertise on issues of violent extremism gives her a unique insight into the ways QAnon is driving some Christians to extremism and violence. She sees QAnon's popularity among certain segments of Christendom not as an aberration, but as the troubling but natural outgrowth of a strain of American Christianity. In this tradition, one's belief is based less on Scripture than on conservative culture, some political uh, disagreements are seen as having nigh op ap uh, apocalyptic stakes and a strong authoritarian streak runs through the faith. For this type of believer, love of God and love of country are sometimes seen as one and the same. Christian nationalism is a huge theme throughout evangelical Christendom. Newman says, referring to teachings that uh, posit America as God's chosen nation, Christians who subscribe to those teachings believe the United States has a covenant with God and that if it is broken, the nation risks literal destruction, analogous to the siege of Jerusalem in the Hebrew Bible. In the eyes of these believers, that covenant is threatened by cultural changes like taking prayer out of public schools and legalizing abortion and gay marriage, Newman says. Christian nationalists see it in, a cataclysmic, in cataclysmic terms this is the moment, and God's going to judge us, she says. When you paint it in existential terms like that, a lot of people feel justified to carry out acts of violence in the name of their faith. How should the country and the new administration approach concerns about extremism among American Christians? What role can faith leaders play in trying to keep vulnerable believers from the temptations of conspiracy theories and do the totems of American evangelicalism look at all different through the eyes of a national security expert? So here we have uh, a tale of two riots. And um, I'm going to go through these two. Uh, I'll show you in a moment, but I'm calling it a tale of two riots. And then I'm going to read further into Miss Newman's article. Um, but I pulled this off of National Review. Because uh, in the National Review magazine, a lot of folks were saying, well, you know, the, the riots that occurred in, um, uh, in the first administration, when, when Trump was elected, uh, those riots were terrible. And then the BLM riots, and, and they said in Washington, 30 people died. There was $6 billion in damage. And only five people died in the riots um, uh, after Biden was elected and uh, the Capitol was breached. And so they're trying to say our riot wasn't as bad as your riot and yours was an insurrection, and, but yours wasn't and yours was prosecuted, but yours wasn't. I, I don't want to go there. I loved what National Review did. They said, in one corner you have riots connected to protests against police violence, especially the appalling death of George Floyd and the most complicated shooting of Jacob Blake that destroyed businesses and cities across the country. This caused upwards of a billion dollars in damage, which actually is far more. And if past is precedent, the places that suffered the riots will take years to recover economically. Somewhere around 20 people died in response. Some media outlets ran stories about how effective rioting is. We'll show you clips momentarily. And a liberal uh, data uh, analyst lost his job for tweeting a study finding that riots are actually politically counterproductive. Interesting. And then he contrasts that with others' view of what occurred. In the other corner, you have the storming of the nation's legislature, which interrupted the counting of the Electoral College votes on the false grounds that the election was stolen. And that's what National Review says. Um, five people died, including a police officer, and the building was ransacked. And things could have gotten much worse. Two explosive devices were found nearby. Some rioters had zip ties. The president himself urged his supporters to walk to the Capitol and failed to aggressively 
condemn the assault. Now, granted, you're going to disagree, some of you with the first paragraph, some of you with the second paragraph. That's not my point. Don't, don't lose me here because your narrative has been uh, effective, affected. Some writers had zip ties. The president himself urged his supporters to walk to the Capitol and failed to aggressively condemn the assault as it took place. But few journalists on either side of the political spectrum made excuses for what happened. There's abundant video of the crowd assaulting police officers and the cops used tear gas and killed one woman as she climbed through a window to a speaker's lobby. Yet some videos appear to show cops opening doors for the invaders and taking selfies with them. And by all accounts, law enforcement was disturbingly outmanned. So there you have a tale of two riots, obviously written with this idea that uh, there's perspectives in each and some people feel one to be more egregious than another. Let me say this. Both were vile. Both were awful. Both were unacceptable. I didn't support any of them. I still don't. End of story. Now, the problem is the riot on the Capitol I have been lumped into, quote-unquote, evangelical Christians, and now we are insurrectionists, and we are extremists, and if we have a nationalistic, meaning a love for our country, and they're redefining all the terms, uh, all of a sudden we're overly authoritarian, and we're problematic to the government, and we have to be re-educated. Let me explain to you what I mean, because Ms. Newman, in this article... Um, she points out that this popularity among certain segments of Christendom uh, is not an aberration, meaning for QAnon, but as the troubling but natural outgrowth of a strain of American Christianity. And, and QAnon, uh, we have vehemently uh, spoken out against all, all of what I call hopium and the comments from in, coming from QAnon. I've never been a follower of that. Many people believe that there was direct access or they were speaking from an intelligence agency point of view and the drops that they were making were coming directly from the president himself, which I can tell you right now is a bag of hooey. It was, it was always a joke. It was never that. And one of the things I love, and, and I forgive me, but I'm getting 56, so I've got to put these on. Uh, this, is, um, this is questioning QAnon, and I love the conclusion that they wrote here. Uh, they said... There are many, many more examples, meaning where QAnon uh, failed in their predictions, kind of like Nostradamus. Perhaps a comparison between Q and, and this magazine's parent company, they go through the whole issue, but they state here uh, that they do not espouse to QAnon. They always seek out, um, uh, let me see if I can find this here. Oh, here we go. Their job with their staff, if they're to publish anything, they list who their leaders are. They have pointed out where their headquarters is located. They do, they do not put out anything that hasn't been fact-checked. Uh, and, and so what they're pointing out here is they say, but given the facts populating this article, meaning all the failures of QAnon, the question should be raised, if the deep state wanted to discredit, neutralize American patriots, could it have invented anything that would have been better designed for that purpose than Q? Of course, considering the trollish nature of 4chan, it is just as likely that Q is a group of 20-somethings laughing themselves silly for having pulled off a large-scale internet prank that has taken on a life of its own. But this is the part that I thought was telling in this article and thankful for. One thing is obvious. Q anon is not as claimed. Someone with access to classified information involving the battle between Trump administration and its opponents in the liberal establishment and who is working to save America by sharing the truth. That is not QAnon. They are not uh, truthful. They are not part of the administration or the previous administration. And somebody pulled a ploy on a number of folks and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And that's what I call hopium. People want something to appeal to them. And so where Miss Newman's article is dead on is that folks were attracted to a narrative that spoke to uh, the echo chamber that they reside in. Now, if you love President Trump, your belief is, you know, he, he uh, is going to call for the... Uh, well, I'll, I'll read to you what she wrote. And I, and I think that her insight in some areas is, is very good. In others, highly troubling. So let me show you... She said, uh, as I read earlier, that Christian nationalism is a huge theme throughout evangelical Christendom. 
And, uh, and so they sat down at Political Magazine, and they decided to ask her a, qu- a couple of questions. The first question that they asked Ms. Newman from, from Politico magazine is they said, in May 2019, an FBI memo described QAnon as a domestic terror threat. You were still working at the Department of Homeland Security at the time. Do you remember uh, when you first heard of QAnon or QAnon? She says, I remember asking my staff about it. I've probably seen a news article about it. She goes on to say it wasn't that big of a deal, and most of us were saying, huh, that's new, but not of real concern category is how the DHS and the FBI looked at it. The next question followed by Politico. They asked her, they said, when did it become a security concern for you? And her comment was, it's real simple, the pandemic. QAnon was, that, was this fringe thing. It was uh, concerning. Then in 2020, it went on, as she said, steroids. In March, even before the shutdowns, I had my staff looking at the research we use for developing behavioral indicators of individuals who might mobilize to violence. If we go down this path of having to all stay home, does that increase stress factors? Yes. Does it increase risk factors known to be common in people who carry out attacks? The answer was yes. Now, is somebody behind this? Are they orchestrating it? Were we locked down? I mean, is this, you know, one... 700th of 1% death rate in our county worthy of 65% of our businesses being shut down and and the abuse being quarantined with the abusers, uh, children being shuttered out of schools and on and on. I mean, we can evaluate that later down the road. But yeah, it, it has created an enormous amount of stress. Was it calculated to create some sort of strife and civil unrest? I don't know. That would be that would be an assumption on my part. But I can tell you right now, The numbers don't add up for what's happening to us here. That's why we've always been in defense of this is not significant enough to violate any of our inalienable rights. And we've stood by that. And, of course, we know the Supreme Court is moving in our direction rapidly. But she went on to say, you started hearing the anti-government conspiracies, which was totally predictable. Anyone who had spent any time in Republican or Libertarian politics knows you're going to have unhappy uh, people unhappy about the government. That's fine. You can predict that. The question then is that if you know what's going to be a challenge, what can the government do to help individuals understand why it is issuing stay-at-home orders, why it is necessary, why it is legal and constitutional? I would love to know that. I'd love to know why they think this is constitutional and why that's legal and why they don't have to invoke the Fifth Amendment to remunerate and pay people whose businesses they've destroyed and why they think it's significant that they can take away our freedom of worship uh, for a, a virus that isn't adding up to all the projections that they've failed time and time again to achieve in, in the sense of their statements, and yet we continue to give them raises and such. So she said it would have been helpful if the government done a better job. I'm in agreement with her. If the government had done a better job at that, we would have seen slightly less anger, slightly less of that victim persecution complex. Um, yeah, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim. Sorry about that. No, we're still open. We're not victims. I understand with peaceful resistance that uh, violating um, a judge's order may land me in jail, but that doesn't make me a victim. I'm, I'm doing what I've always done exercising these God-given rights. I'm not a victim. With the pandemic, you have what is perceived to be a government overreach. You had social isolation, which is a known risk factor for extremism. You had some people with a lot more time on their hands because they were not commuting, not taking kids to ball games, not going to happy hour after work. You had economic stress, uh, another known uh, risk factor. As people lost their jobs or moved uh, to part-time status, You had people who lost loved ones, and of course we know a number of folks who have. There was this great sense that people had lost control. Our lives as we knew them had been upended. People who had a strong, healthy sense of self or community were able to mitigate their isolation. And this is true. That's what we've been doing at Godspeak. We're not isolated. We've mitigated that. We have a very healthy community of wonderful people. And with that has come immunity by community. But for individuals already on the cusp, this made them vulnerable. We use that word vulnerable. This is her statement. We use that word vulnerable to describe people who are not necessarily radicalized yet, but have factors in their lives that make it easier for them to move on a pathway towards extreme radicalized thought. And then for a smaller subset, mobilizes them to violence. I do not 
uh, ascribed to violence. We never have. We've told folks never even consider that. Anyone who's ever gone in that direction, we've always spoken in opposition to that. But yet, she says, that's what we saw in 2020. We saw any number of people spending more time online looking for answers. You had increases in militia movements, the Moonshot CVE group. I've never heard of them, don't know who they are. Which studies radicalization uh, said that in states with stay-at-home orders that lasted 10 days or longer, online searches for white supremacist content. Now, this is interesting. You jump from radicalization, evangelical Christians to white supremacists, and you, uh, you combine all of them. They, you, you conflate them. And so it increased by 21% in states where there either weren't stay-at-home orders or they lasted nine days or fewer. That increase was only 1%. We weren't sure how it was going to happen, she says, but we predicted that we would see violence in some form or fashion. The militia that attempted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, that was horrible, but not really shocking. The violence at protests, not surprising, she says, and the fact that you had white supremacist groups using the protest to commit accelerationist violence. So that is a, that you're, you're conflating all that. Here goes, boom, white supremacy, evangelical Christians, um, and, 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 you know, militia, uh, insurrection. All these are added in her article and conflating them together and making them one group. And she said that wasn't surprising even though the president thought it was Antifa. So that's dismissed, and this is, this is here. We knew we were going to see more radicalization and violence. Now, this is a high-level person from the Department of Homeland Security, a devout Christian by her own admission, and yet dismissing from the evangelical circles, but saying having been raised in that, but still a devout Christian, but not uh, ascribing to the evangelical world. The combination of that on top of the pandemic, on top of a campaign where the president was sowing his own conspiracy theories and laying the groundwork for what eventually became the lie that the election had been stolen. Now, there are still folks who believe it's to be stolen. And in, it, in none of the cases, and this is true, you can study it yourself, none of the cases were kicked out for lack of evidence. They were just, no one wanted to entertain them. Never in the history of the United States have we ever overturned an election by the courts in that sense. Nobody wanted to do it. I understand that. But still, there's anomalies in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Georgia and Nevada and Arizona, and we go down the list, and it was never examined in that capacity, and you had 74, almost 75 million people that just wanted a day in court, just wanted to be heard. Never happened. And now they're saying none of that evidence and none of those affidavits and none of the things that they compiled and none of that was true. It was all made up. That's the narrative. Now, write your narrative, but you represent the government. And we have to operate in the context of truth. And now you're saying, if we believe any of that or any portion that there was some shenanigan, that, that we are now, by being conflated into this group, we are now white supremacists, evangelical Christians, insurrectionists, uh, Violent, I mean, we're just going down the list. And we're being led from the Oval Office by the dog whistle of the president. And so he says, excuse me, she says that the president points out, um, the president was sowing his own conspiracy theories, laying down groundwork for what eventually become the lie that the election was stolen. Well, some would say he started laying the groundwork four years ago. For people who studied disinformation, it became clear that the call was coming from inside the house. That kind of primordial soup makes conditions ripe for vulnerable individuals to move into this space. QAnon, QAnon is not designed to be logical. It's designed to meet these emotional and psychological needs. Over the last year or so, a number, and this is the question they asked her, they said, Miss um, Newman, over the last year or so, a number of evangelical Christian leaders have shared their alarm at what they're seeing with members of their churches being pulled into this QAnon world. You are a Christian raised in the evangelical faith. Do you see anything about the evangelical tradition that could make its believers more susceptible to QAnon? Now, I'm not going to read this in its, in its entirety, but she points out that, that some pastors understand and need help to move their congregants away from being susceptible to this QAnon fantasy. 
And, and she dismisses the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Church as having failed to be able to do that. But individual churches and some other folks are gifted and capable of that. And she says um, uh, in this, she says, but if the, she says, the authoritarian fundamentalist nature of certain evangelical strands is a prominent theme in places where you see the most ardent Trump supporters <laughs> or QAnon believers. Because they've been told, you don't need to study scripture. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So I guess she doesn't mean us. We're giving you the answer. You don't need to study scripture. We're giving you the answer. Then when Reverend Robert Jeffers, uh, a prominent conservative Baptist pastor in Dallas, says, you've got to support Donald Trump and make some argument that sounds churchy. People go, well, I don't like Trump's language, but okay. That's the right thing. It creates people who are not critical thinkers. They're not necessarily reading scripture for themselves, or if they are, they're reading it through the lens of one pastor. And they're not necessarily open to hearing outside perspectives on what the text might say. It creates groupthink. Yeah, church does that. Christianity does that. We follow the scriptures. It's called exhortation. It's called exegetical study. It's not eisegesis, it's exegesis. There's rules to interpret Scripture, so I'm not sure what she's referring to. And it is going to be authoritarian because that's the way the Scriptures are, are aligned, especially in the pastoral epistles where you see the structure of the church itself. So I'm not sure what she's referring to there, and this is where it takes a turn for what I say uh, a troublesome direction. She says another factor is, here we go, Christian nationalism. That's a huge theme throughout evangelical Christendom. It's subtle. Like you had the Christian flag and the American flag at the front of the church, and if you went to a Christian school, you pledged allegiance to the Christian flag and the American flag. There was this merger that was always there when I was growing up, and it was really there for the generation ahead of me in the 50s and 60s. And some people interpreted it as uh, love of country and a love of our faith are the same thing. And for others, there's an actual explicit theology. There was this whole movement, and this is where we're named, I guess. This is where... Uh, she hits us with a target. There was this whole movement in the 90s and 2000s among conservatives to explain how amazing America's founding was. You know, it was. Historically speaking, it was. Let's, let's argue that on the merits of the facts and let's look at each other's evidence. What do you say, Ms. Newman? Let's take a look at it. Original sources. Let's sit down and do that. It was amazing. America's founding was amazing. Our founding was inspired by God, and there's no explanation for how we won the Revolutionary War except God. And by the way, did you know that the founders made this covenant with God? It's American exceptionalism, but it goes beyond that. It says that we are the next version of Israel from the Old Testament, that we are God's chosen nation, and that this is a special covenant, a two-way agreement uh, with God. We can't break it, and if we do, what happened to Israel will happen to us. We'll be overrun by whatever the next Babylon is, taken into captivity, and he will remove his blessing from us. She's insightful and she's got some insights, but again, she's conflating terms and doesn't understand the depth of it. But I have to give her credit. She's done her homework and she's doing a good job here. What threatens that covenant? The moment we started taking prayer out of public schools and allowing various changes to our culture, the legalization of abortion is one of those moments. She says they see it as a cat in cataclysmic terms, meaning evangelical Christians. This is the moment and God is going to judge us. They view the last 50 years of moral decline as us breaking our covenant and that because of that, God's going to remove his blessing. And when you paint it in existential terms like that, a lot of people feel justified to carry out acts of violence in the name of their faith. Well, nobody's espousing acts of violence, but I'm in agreement with the beginning of that, that God moves in the affairs of men. That is the Christian teaching. There's, there's either God or there isn't. Either our rights come from man or they come from God. Which is it? Either the founding was based on this understanding and the Declaration of Independence listing God four times as critical and that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, or we weren't. So we have to make up our mind, especially if we serve in government and we take an oath to defend the Constitution, especially those who are the sovereign in the nation, we the people. And so 
Here we see her laying this out and now moving to this place where somehow these evangelical Christians, if you believe in nationalism, you believe America is exceptional, you are now white supremacist, you're now evangelical Christian, prone to violence and insurrection, and you feel justified to carry out acts of violence. That is a huge assumption on her part. Big jump. She points out that the election in 2016 and 2020 were a fight in existential terms. She loves that word existential. She says it was, a, it was a fight in existential terms for believers of this teaching, meaning if we allow Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden uh, to be president, they're going to put the nail in the coffin of the covenant. And the next thing we're going to see is that Christianity is going to be outlawed. Pastors will not be able to teach the Bible and Christians will become persecuted. Yeah, we, we do believe that. And actually, we're witnessing it, so not sure what she means by that. I mean, it's happening. Now, here's the caveat, she says. Some of that fear is not out of thin air. Good for her. There is a real cancel culture where you see a mob mentality swarm on somebody who holds a biblically-based viewpoint um, on abortion, and you see someone forced out of a position or lose sponsorship or advertising, but they follow that, they follow that to what they think is a logical conclusion that eventually pastors will not be able to preach against homosexuality or abortion, and if they do, they're going to end up arrested and unable to preach. I've heard that argument made multiple times over the last 10 years. The irrationality is the idea, irrationality is the idea that there are no protections, that the courts would step in and say, no, the First Amendment applies to Christians as well. Well, we would sure like to see the First Amendment applied. Apparently, that hasn't operated, and we have a living example of the violation of that First Amendment. But, of course, you say it's never going to happen, and we're supposed to trust you. But she goes on to say, it tries to assert that they are losing power and must regain power by any means necessary, which is why you can justify voting for Trump. Yeah. Would there be a problem voting for Trump? I'm not, I'm not sure... Why, why do we have to justify voting for Trump? Was there some problem with that? As though the, so this is the position. So that we can, for God's purposes, maintain this Christian nation, but that's nowhere in Scripture. Scripture, when it talks about what Israel is in the New Testament, it explains that it's the church. Well, that, that's up for debate. Which is not owned by any one nation... It's a global church, and even if somehow, here we go with globalism, and even if somehow you wanted to say that the American church is what Scripture is referencing, the Bible tells us to do the exact opposite of what they're talking about. We're told not to seek power. We're told to be humble. We're told to turn the other cheek. Jesus, in confronting Caesar's representative at his trial, says, My kingdom is not of this world. My fight is not here. Basically, our purpose as believers is to be salt and light. It's not to force everybody else to hold our beliefs. We're not forcing anyone. We're in a constitutional republic. We get to participate in the public square. We get to vote. But you tell us that the candidate we chose is somehow insane and he doesn't deserve and neither do we the opportunity to follow those. We believe America is exceptional. We want to vote accordingly. We believe abortion is wrong. We want to vote accordingly. But we've been lumped in with white supremacists and we've been lumped in with insurrectionists and we've been lumped in with ad nauseum. She says, to fix that, you really have to go back to Scripture. You can't just be like, Christian nationalism is wrong. You have to go back to what the Bible says versus what you were taught as an American Christian. Where it was so interwoven, it took me a while to even discover it. Once somebody pointed it out, I was like, oh my gosh, I was taught that, and you're right. That's not correct. But it's a very hard thing for people to address because it requires acknowledging that how you were raised or the people that you trusted either intentionally lied to you or were just wrong. It's hard. It makes humil uh, takes humility to go there. It's a hard thing for people to recognize and escape from, escape from as though we're in a cult. But sadly, it's a security issue that we have to address because it has led to this. A Christian who believes America is exceptional is a security issue and it has to be addressed. So, political ask her another question. They say, it sounds like you're describing a reality for some evangelical Christians where their church is based more on culture than scripture and that it makes them more susceptible to things like QAnon. Oh, absolutely, she says. Here's the thing, and I will do my best to explain it from a secular perspective. 
There's text in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is admonishing a church he helped establish. You should be mature adults now in your faith, but I'm still having to feed you with milk. He's basically saying you should be 18, but you're still nursing, and we need to get it together. There was a big movement in the 90s called Seeker-Friendly Churches. Willow Creek, one of the most prominent of these churches, did a self-assessment about 10 or 15 years ago, and one of the things that they found is while they had converted people to Christians, there was a lack of growth in their faith. This is where she nails it, at least an understanding, but she misses the application and the conclusion of it. There, there has been leading people, you know, we're making converts, but not disciples. She's, she's smart that way. But she takes it to a different direction. They were not learning the scriptures. They were not engaged in community, ecclesia, public square. They were not discipling anybody. Oh, excuse me, they were not, yeah, they were not discipling anybody. And Willow Creek's assessment was, we failed. We baptized some people, but they're not actually maturing. One of my questions is, are we seeing in the last four years one of the consequences of that failure? They didn't mature in their faith, and they're very easily led astray by what Scripture calls false teachers. My thesis here is that if we had more scriptural-based set of believers in this country, if everybody who calls themselves a Christian had actually read through, I don't know, 80% of the Bible, they would not have been so easily deceived. We go through the Bible every year in our readings, and then we also teach it. 66 books of the Bible. We've been doing that. The question they ask her, and I'm almost finished, and bear with me because I've got a couple of videos, but we will finish by the top of the hour to the best of my ability. The question is, for nearly 20 years since 9-11, to counter violent extremism, the U.S. government has done outreach to imams and other faith leaders in Muslim communities in light of the QAnon problem. Should we be doing the same with leaders in evangelical Christian communities? And of course, we heard Bill Maher say that Christians were responsible for the insurrection of the riots in the Capitol. And I'm, I'm thinking, do they, do they apply the same thing as they're talking about imams and outreach to the Muslim community? Do they apply the, the same labels. I think we need to learn from the mistakes of the last 20 years, he says, and I'm very mindful that there are places where things went very well with countering violent extremism outreach, and there are also places where things did not go well. It's a mixed bag. And I, I still want to know what she's speaking of about extreme violent or violent extremism. I personally feel a great burden since I came from these communities to try to figure out how to help the leaders in those communities, and I don't know that I am a credible voice anymore because of my political outspokenness. She's very left-leaning. But there certainly are pastors who are struggling with these questions. How do I help somebody that has gone down the QAnon rabbit hole? Or to put it in biblical terms, how do I help somebody who has made Trump an idol? Now, if you've made Trump an idol, that is a great place to minister to somebody. It really is. I mean, you wanted somebody, you voted for him, it didn't happen. Is your whole world upside down? Are you going to quit? Are you going to give up? Then he was an idol. The idea is, I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. All things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, and this is something where if Trump is an idol, you quit. Says pastors, church leaders, faith leaders, when you frame it that way for them, the answers start to come. Oh, we know how to do this. Usually, pastors have done a lot of counseling or shepherding in their lifetimes. They know that you don't approach people head on with dogmatic arguments that tend uh, not to work. You need to recognize that there's often something else going on that has made somebody vulnerable to being deceived, and coming out of that deception can be painful and humbling. But faith leaders, the good ones at least, are perfect for that kind of work. So even though the particular topic itself may be difficult than they're used to, they may have the skill set necessary to accomplish this. Um, I, I'm almost finished. This is the last part I want to read to you. She says, some of what you need to do is, here we go, supporting them because it's disheartening work. It takes a long time for somebody to disengage. It's usually not a light switch, although for QAnon, here we go, January 20th may historically be looked at as a light switch moment. QAnon lore long held that on January 20th, Joe Biden would not be inaugurated, Donald Trump would remain president, declare martial law, and many prominent political leaders would be arrested. Never bought into that, never proclaimed that, never stood by that. That's not us. You've seen many people go, oh, I was conned, and they're out. But for others, it may be a longer journey. 
And I'm listening to prophets, supposed, telling us all these same things. They need to be held accountable. You don't give people hopium. You have to be held accountable for the, the fluff that you're throwing out there. Certainly, what they teach from their pulpits is relevant, even going back to the basic. Scripture teaches us not to spend time in conspiracies. You don't have to say anything about stop the steal or whatever, or teach the Ten Commandments and the fact that bearing false witness and slander are actually what conspiracy theories do. You're believing made-up sets of facts about people you don't have first-hand knowledge of. That's on the left and the right, and that's good counsel in that sense. There are ways pastors can address, but it's hard and they need a community where they feel safe to be encouraged to do this work. She goes on to say that these pastors uh, could be aided by the government in re-educating or encouraging their congregations. Now, last thing. This was a magazine I used to love called World Magazine. And World Magazine came out, and the title of the front of it is The Insurrectionist Heresy. The Insurrectionist Heresy. World Magazine used to be fantastic. I loved World Magazine. But now Russell Moore and all those folks that are in line with, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. They're on a payroll. They're going to write articles that are going to describe the church as being a part of the Insurrectionist Heresy. And, And you start to look at the players involved in that. That's not the case. And lumping Christianity into this entire thing, trying to get them out of the public square and out of politics is a tragic mistake. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Ecclesia is public square. We are to be involved in a constitutional republic. Now, they want to change it or they want to do something else. And yes, I do believe America is exceptional. Name another nation that has survived 244 years. You can rewrite the history and give us a 1619 project, but if you want to debate and you want to go to original sources, and you really want to logically debate this, which when we look at critical race theory and the things that they espouse there, they don't want to have that logical debate. They don't even want to listen anymore. And so here we are as Christians wanting to engage. We're not violent. We don't seek violence, but we're being labeled as white supremacists, as violent insurrectionists, and this is troublesome. It's very troublesome. And so I wanted to show you... Uh, a couple of videos, and, and, and then I'm going to show you um, Alan Dershowitz, who is no conservative, might I add. He is no conservative. He is a liberal Harvard professor, um, law professor. Brilliant, but he's liberal. And you're going to get to hear what he says about insurrection and about riots and about what occurred and all these things and, and the impeachment. So we're going to take a look at that. But I want to show you, there's going to be a couple of videos here. One is going to be when President Trump was elected president and they had the inaugural evening and I'm going to let you see what took place then. Then we're going to show you some BLM riots and then we're going to show you what someone says about looting and then we're going to take you uh, to the Capitol riots and a couple other things like that. So we're just going to go through these, take a look at them. Mike is going to play them one by one. Take them in. Let's go. Anger reaching a boiling point in the nation's capital after President Trump took the oath of office. Police in riot gear facing off against the protesters just six blocks from the inaugural parade. Burning cars and smashed windows. A small group of protesters dressed in black, their faces covered, armed with hammers and bricks. Before the swearing in ceremony even began, protesters tried to block checkpoint entrances. During President Trump's speech, several demonstrators were escorted out of the area. Several officers injured during the protest. If somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike, because that makes sure that that person eats. That makes sure that that person has clothes. That's reparations. That is reparations. Anything they want to take, take it, because these businesses have insurance. 
They're going to get their money back. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. We have just been through an intense election, and emotions are high. But now, tempers must be cooled. So those are some videos. Um, we're going to hear from Alan Dershowitz in relation to, uh, can the president be impeached? Was this considered an insurrection? Um, what is an insurrection as opposed to a riot? What is free speech? This is a liberal Harvard professor, and I was fascinated. This is what motivated me. So I, I, we're going to go through a series uh, of videos. And um, the only, I mean, Alan Dershowitz has a brilliant mind, but uh, hopefully um, my face is a little younger than his, so you'll long to come back to me uh, when we're done with the video. I'm just kidding. Let's take a look at Alan Dershowitz. Here's the first video. Well, you wouldn't know from listening to CNN, you wouldn't know from listening to PBS that the president used the words peaceful and patriotic, just like you wouldn't know when the president spoke in Charlottesville that he said, I'm excluding Nazis and white supremacists and white nationalists from my statement. There are, there are good people on both sides. So you can't believe what you see uh, in much of the partisan media, certainly not on CNN and certainly not on PBS. So the president said peaceful and patriotic. That's not incitement. Uh, moreover, incitement has a technical meaning. It has to call for immediate, imminent violence. If he had stood in front of the Capitol and said, now break in and destroy and steal Pelosi's laptop and kill policemen, that would be incitement. But advocacy is protected by the Constitution. You can even advocate violence. Uh, there are cases involving communists who advocated the violent overthrow of the government. And that was held to be constitutionally protected speech or the Brandenburg case where a neo-Nazi Klansman uh, called for um, violence. And he was surrounded by people with guns and with crosses and with, um, you know, Ku Klux Klan paraphernalia. And the Supreme Court nine to nothing found that to be uh, constitutionally protected. Even the ACLU, which favors the impeachment, has said that the speech itself was constitutionally protected. I, that's that's pretty fascinating, and and I want you to go and listen to Charlie Kirk's uh, program with uh, Alan Dershowitz in its entirety, uh, because we're coming to the top of the hour, and I can't show you more than that. I mean, I can, but I don't want to bore you to death. At least you'll get to hear Charlie questioning or asking questions of Alan Dershowitz, and it's far more engaging. Plus, Charlie has a mind that is just sharp as can be. But I, I want to leave you all with this. Number one. Whatever things are true, you've got to find that. Do your homework. Do not promulgate or, or propagate a lie. A rumor is just a lie with legs on it. Don't send me anything and don't send anyone else anything that you haven't checked the site sources and original sources of. Don't say, well, my friend told me that their son is an FBI agent. That doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. Make sure that you have cited the sources and it's very clear. And certainly don't send it to me. I don't want it. I told you that all along. Don't buy into the hopium, whether on the right or the left. Dig into what is true. Secondly, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Read your Bible every single day, cover to cover, book by book. Let me, let me, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Do it in its entirety. Study the Psalms and the Proverbs because you get wisdom and praise in the two of those. I, I love the Psalms and the Proverbs. 31 Days to Wisdom and Praise is one of my favorite devotionals. It's just the Psalms and the Proverbs. And then you do a devotional study, and sometimes you do a systematic study. Sometimes you do a chronological study. However you want to do it. Some people do a reading in the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, Proverb. However you want to do it, just do it. And you say, well, what's the best version of the Bible to read? Should I read King James Version, New King James Version, you know, the Living Bible, the English Standard, New American Standard? I'll tell you what, with the exception of the New World Translation, I'll tell you what the, the best version of the Bible ever, the best version of the Bible that you should read without exception, it is the best version of the Bible. This is the one you should read. Ready? The one you have. Just read it. Trust me, 
It won't return void. It's profound. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it, it reads you. It gives you a lens to see things through life. Now, granted, Miss Newman would consider that, you know, you can't know truly what the scriptures say uh, from a teaching in a church. And the pastor who's authoritarian, even though the scriptures point out how a church operates. But listen, the Bible speaks and there's rules to study it and we follow those. And I'd be happy to contest with her in relation to why this nation is a great nation, how we don't worship this nation, we worship God, but God has certainly blessed this nation. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Mm, work with me on that one. That's a good one, Miss Newman. Sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. These are from the, the Proverbs. This is wisdom. This is wisdom for any nation. God judges nations. How, how can we allow a million babies a year to be aborted and declare that there's a God in the universe, that they've been created, the Imago Dei, in His image, as the Scriptures say, He created them in His image, and then we're allowed to decimate them, and then we say, God bless America. It doesn't work that way. And you talk about a covenant. A covenant is, God says, if you do this, I'll do that. That works with any nation. That works with anyone who comes together with a compact, an agreement, and by the way, the word constitution is a Roman cognate for statute, an immovable structure. It's a work of art. And every work of art has to have those four areas. And our constitution has that. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating structure that, that is, is created in such a way to bind us as a nation. America is not an immutable trait of the color of one's skin, but an ideology that comes from the realization from Scripture that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. And I would love to debate Miss Newman on historical references of where our founders found the majority of their insights. And if she would like to go back to Jonathan Mayhew's sermon in 1750 that started that firestorm of really why we would contend with Great Britain to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, I would love to have that debate. But the people who are most threatened by free thinkers and those that realize that our rights don't come from government, they come from God, the people who would be most threatened by that would be hmm, the government. Yeah, uh, we, we, aren't to, we aren't to all be the same. That's called the Tower of Babel. We're, we're, we're not looking for everyone to look exactly alike. There's freedom, there's individuality, there's the ability to flourish and obtain excellence. And as man is given freedom, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. You'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. A representative form of government is found in Exodus where Jethro says to Moses, appoint godly men who are not covetous over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, federal, state, county, local. Come on, Ms. Newman, let's talk about that. Let's talk about where it says in Isaiah that the Lord is our king, our judge, and our lawgiver, executive, legislative, judicial branch. Let's talk about that. Why dismiss it? Because the problem with the scriptures is when you read those things, you realize nobody owns you. That's frightening to those that want to have tyranny and authority. And that's why in 6,000 years of recorded history, America for 244 years has had more freedom because we realize our freedom doesn't come from a tyrannical authority. It comes from God. Now, with that being said, where we say we, we the people in order to form a more perfect union, union, community, common union, community, that union must come with agreements that first of all, we're accountable to God. And we're accountable to each other. I know God's watching, so I'm not going to steal, covet, lie, all those things. Murder. We're not going to do that. We're accountable to God and accountable to each other. But when you take God out of the equation and you say you're God and you're going to tell me what I can and can't say and how I can and can't live, now we got a problem. Nowhere in there am I espousing violence. Never have I. Never will I. But I will say this. I have a responsibility, as the Scripture says, that a man who doesn't protect his family is less than an infidel. Meaning, I'm not saying infidel in relation to the world that doesn't believe. I'm saying a person that doesn't protect his family is like someone who doesn't recognize his responsibility to God Almighty. And government just needs to be out of our business. You have simple things. Provide for the common defense. 
And, and this idea that liberty is for our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution. We need to dust off the old books, go back and revisit it and realize, Miss Newman, the greatest gift we can give you is that if Christians would, like you were saying, not be so shallow and not just be converts but disciples and go deeper on these principles, you'd start to realize we're not your enemy. We're, we're the ones that if we do this right and these pastors start taking their role and examining what the Scripture says about all these different areas of life, we could be a great asset to our communities. But somewhere along the line and somewhere along the way, we abdicated that responsibility in the ecclesia, the public square. We cause the gospel to be truncated and myopic where we just want people to raise their hands and we just say to everybody, we don't do politics. And while we've been building big church buildings and playing church, the secular progressive left has dominated the ecclesia. And so, Ms. Newman, you're right. We need to go deeper and make disciples. And I'm going to do that for you. We're going to educate our congregation. We're going to be students of the Word. We're going to be students of government. We're going to be, more importantly, students of liberty and freedom. And yeah, we are going to be students of historical truth. And by the way, I was a history major. And you can't prove history scientifically, but you can do it through cross-referencing. And I am ready anytime you want to sit down and look at original sources. And let's contend and see if America really was exceptional and is exceptional. So, with that being said, let's step it up, folks. Let's start going to churches that want to make disciples who understand the ecclesia and understand where liberty comes from so that we can start to instruct people and we have a moral law, not so that we can create a theocracy or dominionism, but so that we can have a constitutional republic that understands in a pluralistic society that people need to get along and you just don't, you just don't mess with them. And be nice to your neighbor. And that's why we close with what the attorney said to Jesus. He said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first five commandments. And he said, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said this, on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. It's encapsulated in that. We love to declare we love God and we love to worship, but when it comes to loving your neighbor, especially the least of these, the ones that don't have a voice, that are inside their mother's womb, that we eviscerate and decimate and shred and flush into the sewer lines of our nation, that's not loving our neighbor. And it's expedient and it's easy and it's sterile and we don't see it. It doesn't make it right. You want to call me a fanatic for believing that? Well, I'm a Christian. Jesus said, before you were born, and the scripture says, which he's the word, before you were born, I knew you. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. They didn't call Jesus when he leapt in the womb, coming into the presence as he was in the belly of Mary, in the womb of Mary, coming into the presence of Elizabeth as John was in the womb of Elizabeth. And he wept. they didn't call him a blob of tissue. They called him by name. We, this is reality. There is a God. We're creating his image. We have to protect life. Where do I get that? Oh, I'm sorry. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with these inalienable rights life, then liberty, then the pursuit of happiness, because happiness and liberty are of scarce little value if you're dead. So, Ms. Newman, let's talk. You're not my enemy or my opportunity. Nobody is calling for violence. None of us here are, but certainly don't lump us in and conflate us into this mess so that you can somehow take out Christendom because they're a problem to a government that wants to rapidly expand. It's not going to do us any good. You're a smart lady, and you know these things. And so I would really enjoy getting to know you and be your friend, and let's reason together. All right? I doubt you'll see this, but if you do, God bless you, and thank you. All right, folks. This blessing is for Miss Newman tonight, and I want you all to say it with me. We want this to go upon her. Join with me out of number six. Miss Newman, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us. God bless you all. We'll see you tomorrow night as we take a look at Jonathan Mayhew's sermon. It is amazing. God bless you. Good night.